some questions are, are very simple to ask and a little bit more complicated to answer. And, and what those are can definitely be on a person-by-person -person basis. Uh, my complicated answer may not be your complicated answer, and, and the question that's complicated for me may not be all that complicated for you. Um, you know, what do you do for work? Most people are expecting a you know, two to six word answer, and you know, I get that question, and I'm launching into my memorized seven page manifesto on why, despite all appearance to the contrary, I'm not actually a total loser. Um, um, you know, are you married? Do you have kids? Those are pretty simple for me, but you know, th those can be complicated questions. I know, I know for me, one of the ones that's come up a couple times recently, actually, that has proven to be a little bit more complicated than even I expected was, where are you from? Um, which is odd, and, and this was asked by, not in, a, not in a conversational small talk way, this was asked by, by people who, who cared about me and were really trying to, to learn who I was and know more about me. Um, because in the small talk sense, that is an easy question to answer. I can say, Washington-ish, here and there. Um, but if I'm being honest, the, the honest answer is more involved because the truth is I've never really considered myself from anywhere. Um, my young childhood was spent in Utah and Oregon and hopping from town to town in Washington as my dad climbed the corporate ladder. Um, and as I grew older, more and more moves came, each one necessitated by some kind of familial disaster that was somehow more epic and outrageous and Jerry Springer-esque than the last one. Um, uh, divorces and, and mental breakdowns and lengthy felony incarcerations and, and foster care one and foster care two and DSHS plane ticket saying, go east, young man, until you see the sun come up on the Atlantic. Um, and breakups and teenage rebellion and, 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 and unplanned pregnancies and more divorces and at some point, I look up, I'm 18 years old, I'm in Yakima, and I, I wonder what the heck just happened. <laughs> and, and so people ask, well, where are you from? I'm like, dear God, I don't know. <laughs> um, and, and, and so when I'm feeling witty, I might respond to that question by saying, well, I am a, I am a sojourner on the face of the earth. I am a, I am a mysterious wanderer with no lineage. Um, which has the dual advantages of both being deeply fun to say and, um, and, and somewhat true, just because m my dad was an orphan. I, um, you know, we've been reading in the book of Nehemiah, our, our series has been restored, um, pursuing true purpose in the book of Nehemiah, and they love their genealogies, don't they? <laughs> and um, my, my, my genealogy, my giant Nehemiah list of names is about two people long myself and my dad. My, my last name isn't the name of my father's back to antiquity. It's the name of the people who, who loved my father and gave him a home. So where are you from? Where is your home? That's, that's kind of the question we're faith with, faced with. And in Nehemiah, we see that the Jewish people knew where home was, or at least where it was supposed to be. It was Jerusalem the holy city. When, when, when they were in exile, when they were held in chains in Babylon, kept in a foreign country, away from the land of their ancestral inheritance, um, eventually they were delivered. They were set free by, by, by events that God had set in motion through the, through the kingdom of Persia. And, and some of them answered the call and returned home. And we've been reading about what they found there. We've been reading in Nehemiah. They, they found a ruined city with the wall torn down and, and empty homes and enemies on every side and, and God's people treating each other unjustly. And, and so we've been reading about the struggle to, to correct these things, to restore their home, the holy city, to its true function, its true purpose. 
So we will be reading Nehemiah, all of chapter 11 and through the first 26 verses of chapter 12. So I, bear, I, I urge you to get comfortable and to bear with me um, because that's a, that's a lot of Nehemiah real estate we're going through. But it's going to be awesome. You're going to love it. You're going to critique my Hebrew pronunciation. Um, and then and I hope you'll bear with me after I'm done reading too because I'm going to, I'm going to be very academic with you. I'm, just, I'm going to first go through and I'm going to tell you as much as possible what we saw in here and then I'm going to tell you what it means. So for a while you're going to be wondering, okay, I, that's very interesting. What's the point? Bear with me. Be patient. So Nehemiah chapter 11 starting in verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. While nine out of ten remained in the other towns, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Aphiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of the sons of Perez, and Messiah, the son of Baruch, son of Colhose, son of Haziah, son of Adiah, son of Joyarib, son of Zechariah, son of the Shelemite. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshulam, son of Joed, son of Padiah, son of Koliah, son of Messiah, son of Ithiel, son of Jeshiah, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hasunah, was second over the city. Of the priests, Jedidiah, the son of Joyarib, Jashin, Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Marioth, son of Ahutub, ruler of the house of God and their brothers who did the work of the house, 822. And Adiah, the son of Jeroam, son of Peliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Peshur, son of Malchijah, and his brothers, heads of fathers' houses, 242. And Amashai, the son of Azarel, son of Azhai, son of Meshilamoth, son of Immer, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagedolim. Hagedolim. Baby name, file that away. Um, <laughs> and of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashub, son of Azrakam, son of Hashabiah, son of Buni. Shabbath, and Shabbathai and Josabad of the chiefs of the Levites who were over at the outside work of the house of God. And Mataniah, the son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. And Bakbukiah, the second among his brothers, and Abda, the son of Shamua, son of Galal, son of Jeduthun, all the Levites in the holy city were 284. The gatekeepers. Akub, Talmon, and their brothers who kept watch at the gates were 172. And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the temple servants lived in Ophel, and Ziha and Gishba were over the temple servants. Their overseers of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers over the work of the house of God. 
For there was a command from the king concerning them and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. And Pethaniah, the son of Meshezebel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all manners concerning the people. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Dibon and its villages, and in Jechabazil and its villages, and in Jeshua, and in Molada and Beth Pelet, in Hazar Shual, in Beersheba and its villages, in Ziklag, in Mekona and its villages, in Enrimon, in Zorah, in Jarmuth, Zanoa, Adullam, and their villages, Lachish and its fields, and Azekah and its villages, so they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward, at Michmash, Aijah, Bethel, and its villages, Ananoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gitim, Hadid, Zebuim, Nebalat, Lod, and Ono, the Valley of Craftsmen. And certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua. Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hatush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Merimoth, Edo, Ginnathoi, Abijah, Mijamin, Madiah, Bilgah, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, Jediah. These were the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. And the Levites, Jeshua, Bidwi, Kadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And Bakbuk and Bakbukiah and Uni and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Yeshua was the father of Joachim, and Joachim the father of Eliashib, Eliashib the father of Joyada, Joyada the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jadua. And in the days of Joachim were priests, heads of fathers' houses of Sariah, Moriah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshulam, of Amariah, Jehonan, of Maluki, Jonathan, of Shebaniah, Joseph, of Harim, Adna, of Marioth, Helkai, of Edo, Zechariah, of Ginnathon, Meshulam, of Abijah, Zikri, of Miamin, of Modiath, Piltai, of Bilgath, Shemua, of Shemaiah, Jehonathan, of Joyrib, Mataniah, of Jediah, Uzi, of Salai, Kalai, of Amok, Eber, of Hilkiah, Hashabiah, of Jediah, Nethanel. In the days of Eliashib, Joyada, Johanan, and Jadua, the Levites were recorded as head of the fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Johanan the son of Eliashib, and their chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the sons of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them, to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God. Watch by watch, Mataniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talmon, and Akub were gatekeepers, standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, son of Josadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. Are you with me? Am I with you? <laughs> Our home is in the presence of God, and we come into his presence in worship. Uh, Pastor uh, 
Presbyterian. Tim Keller <laughs> um, is a great guy. And, and he, um, in, in some of his many writings, has observed that the, the essence of a city is density, people per square foot. Um, most ancient cities had about 1,000 to 3,000 people in them, which by our modern standards is tiny. Um, but the geographic area was also much smaller than ours because in an ancient city, everybody was living behind a wall and you don't want to big a build a 300 mile wall. You want a, you know, a smaller wall. <laughs> um, so as our best estimate based off archeology span is that the density of people in ancient cities was around 240 people per acre. Um, now, for contrast, modern-day Manhattan has 105 people per acre, and we have skyscrapers, so density. Um, if you've been with us for a while, you'll remember that the Jerusalem Wall has recently been put back up, but rubble remains. There's a, there's a ruined swath of, of empty homes throughout the city. Um, back in Nehemiah 7, actually, verse 4, there's just I, I could try and, and restate the situation, but the Bible summed it up really well on its own. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Jerusalem, the holy city, lacked the essence of a city because it lacked people. It did not have enough people in it to fulfill its function and its purpose of being the home of the Jewish people and the center of the worship of God. Our home is in the presence of God, and we come into his presence and worship. So I want to look with you through this, this passage, because at first blush, it might seem very disconnected, uh, even random. Okay, we're short on folks in Jerusalem, so here's a giant list of some people's names, their houses, where they came from, what tribe they are, and what their job was. Okay, what, what, what do these things have to do with one another? Um, because th this section is actually unified in intent. Jerusalem, uh, 1 Kings, I think it's uh, 1421, says that God chose Jerusalem above all other cities to place his name there, to make that a city for his name, his purposes. Um, and Jerusalem at this point in history was not ready or able to perform its purpose, to offer acceptable worship to God. And so in this passage, I think what the, the main things that we see are that um, in order to perform the function of offering acceptable worship to God, first the city needed people who had, in fact, offered themselves to God. And that also that that worship was to be performed by proper people in the prescribed manner, and that the worship that would happen would have to take place in the presence of God. And this does matter um, because if we are all, in some sense, sojourners on the face of the earth, if, if we look back to the faith of Abraham looking for, for a city that was not built by human hands, um, waiting in faith, a man as good as dead, looking um, for something more than, than what the world offers. Because I think if, if we've looked at the thorns infesting the ground of this world to, to, to allude to Genesis and, then, and the curse that has plagued humanity since sin entered the world, if we look at, at people we love getting sick and, and people dying, and, and, and there's some part of us that recognizes that it's not being right. It's normal. 
It's the only thing we've ever experienced, and yet somehow we know this is not right. Things ought not to be this way. Um, and I think C.S. Lewis encapsulated the thought best when he noted that if we have a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most logical answer is that we were not made for this world. So as we, we step, most likely trembling, <laughs> into the presence of God, who is our only hope for a true and enduring home, apart from, from this broken and dying place we find ourselves traveling through, sojourning in. We approach him in worship or not at all. And, and what must we ask will render our worship acceptable in the sight of the great king, to the Holy One of Israel? How will we come into the presence of the consuming fire that is the creator of the heavens and the earth? Who are we to do so? Well, God gave the Jewish people a blueprint. He gave them Jerusalem, the holy city, the place of his presence and for his name. He gave them the system of sacrifices and offerings, the, the roles and the rules and the rites that they would perform by which acceptable sacrifices, acceptable worship might be offered. So I kind of made, made three points, um, first of which is that acceptable uh, worship is offered by people who have offered themselves to God. Um, when we read this section, we're, we're immediately confronted by, I think, the most striking part of it, um, just one and two. Now all the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who had willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. In order for the city to be a city, in order for it to be operational and functional and, and serving its purpose as the, the center of the worship of God, the people draw lots and a, a tenth of them come forward to give themselves to the holy city. Uh, a tithe is, is introduced and it's not the giving of a tenth over to God's service and it's not a tithe of, of agricultural produce or, or, uh, or of herd animals or even of money, it's a tithe of the people. They tithe themselves to live in the city of Jerusalem. They, they, they give themselves to the holy city, to God's purpose, to live there, to serve there, and to worship there. Now, this is a very powerful example of, of a deeper spiritual reality that I think we see running through the book of Nehemiah, because I, I have no doubts, and I think we even have some hints in Nehemiah, that there were certainly among the Jewish people, guys who, who came back just because, you know, hey, I might be able to get some property in this region based off my bloodline or, you know, with no thought to who had given them that inheritance or even some people who just didn't have a lot going on for them in Persia and figured, hey, how bad could Judea be? Um, but, but the main theme we see in Nehemiah is the story of, of, of people who stepped out in faith, who answered the call to return home, to return to their ancestral homeland and resume the worship of God. And so God preserves a remnant of the Jewish people from the Babylonian exile and a remnant of those decide to return home. And from that remnant, a tithe is offered of people who come into the holy city to live and worship there. People who have offered themselves sequentially to God. There's a... Uh, a story of a king, 
It's, a, it's an old pastor story. I think uh, there's an English, actually, I think technically it was Welsh, uh, a guy named Charles Spurgeon. And, and he told the story, and I'll butcher it for you. But there's a story of a king, um, and he's out riding, you know, with some of his nobles, expecting the realms, doing kingly business. And, and a, a simple farmer comes up to him and says, Your Majesty, this is a humble gift, um, but I'm a simple farmer, and I give you this carrot. It is the finest carrot I've ever grown, and it is the finest carrot I ever will grow, and I give it to you as a gift of love and affection. And he expected nothing less, and the king was a wise man and saw the farmer's heart and, and knew that he was speaking truthfully. And so the king said, thank you. I have a plot of land. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I give it to you to farm so that you will continue to, to be... Um, a, a good and giving person as you have shown yourself to be this day. Um, and one of the nobles who's riding with the king sees this and is kind of astonished by it. He thinks to himself, well, if a plot of land is what you get for giving the king a carrot, uh, what will happen if you get something that's actually nice? <laughs> so the noble waits for a while, and, and when the king's at a feast later, the noble who's a, who is a horse breeder brings the king this amazing steed and says, Your Majesty, this is the finest horse I have ever bred, the finest horse I ever will breed, and I give it to you as a gift of love and affection. And again, the wise king discerns the heart of his nobleman and thanks him for the gift and says nothing more. Um, and as, as time passes, the, the nobleman's face falls and his, his frustration and, and questioning becomes obvious. And so at one point, the king leans over him and says, the farmer gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. So why does this matter? What's the point? And, and, and I bring these examples up. I tell this story. I, I talk about this tithing of the people because the heart of the worshiper matters to God. It's not an incidental, it's not unimportant, it's not if I check the right boxes, it'll be okay because our hearts matter in that process. And it's a theme we repeatedly see in the Bible. Isaiah 29, speaking about the people in Jerusalem, says these people draw near to me with their, with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is just a commandment taught by men. Psalm 51 says that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You can say that this, this, this issue, this issue of our hearts being out of, out of whack in our worship, we can say, possibly even further back, but at the very least, it goes back to Genesis 4 when, when two brothers, Cain and Abel, offered God a sacrifice and God looked on both sacrifices and on the hearts of both men and accepted one and not the other. When, when people hold back their hearts from God, even in an act of, of technically accurate worship, they don't fool anyone except maybe one another as they, as they convince each other that, oh yes, we're all righteous and we're all right before God. But God is not fooled. Uh, acceptable worship to God is offered by people who have offered themselves to him. Now, as, as to the second point, we also see that acceptable worship is offered by proper people in the prescribed fashion. That's a lot of P's. It's a tongue twister. Um, if indeed, as I, as I have asserted, and I, and I hope to persuade you of as, as the, the afternoon, morning, I don't know when it is, progresses, um, if this section is indeed a, a unified argument, a, a, a plan to get Jerusalem functioning again, to get it back to being the, the functional city where God's worship is, is offered in acceptable fashion. Um, 
we say, okay, well, what's up with this giant list of names then? So they bring more people in, I get that. We're getting Jerusalem running. What's with the people? And, and the answer is, um, we, we, it's, it's a question of their roles. Who is able to offer worship to God? We, we, when we look at the Old Testament law, we, we see that, that approaching the nearness of God because God's presence is in the temple. God's name is on the city. As you draw ever closer to the presence of the living God, the, the, the level of, of ceremonial cleanness, of, 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 of right standing before God, the requirement increases ever closer as you draw near to, to the inner sanctum, the, the holy of holies. And so in that list, we see a genealogy of priests, of, of Levites, of temple singers, of gatekeepers, people who by virtue of their descent, by being authorized by God, descended from a list of approved persons saying, these people will serve in my temple, their descendants will serve in my temple. Um, that This list of names is a list of, okay, who do we have who can come into the temple, who can come into the presence of God and legitimately offer acceptable sacrifices in the proper and prescribed manner? So we see the names of priests. We see where they came from, proving, hey, this guy goes back to Aaron. He checks out. His children, okay, they can come in too. The, the Levites who serve outside the temple and assist the priests with things, the, the gatekeepers who, who secure the physical security of the temple site, um, and the singers who come before God in the presence of God in the temple and offer him praise. And, and the takeaway of this is perhaps a little unsettling, I think, um, to modern minds. I know it is to me. Because we see that coming before God in worship to offer him sacrifice, to sing his praises in his presence, is by no means a right. It is, in fact, a privilege that historically has been afforded to precious few. And that worship was limited not only in who might offer it, but how often it would be offered and in what fashion. In fact, the, the, the entire temple cult, um, in the, it's, there's a, it's a technical term, we just use cult meaning bad people I don't like, but the, the practice of, of, of the religious uh, ritualistic aspects of the worship of God. I mean, if you want to play by play, you can read the book of Leviticus. It's, it's a real page turner. But the takeaway is, is that the, the, the ritualistic, the prescribed worship of God um, has, a, has an organization and a level of detail that I think for, for most of us moderns with our attention spans such as they are causes us just to wonder when next recess is. Um, and so it, it, it makes us kind of squeamish because we, 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 we see that in fact the worship of the maker of the heavens is, is not a, a trivial or, or a just purely entertaining thing. It's a deadly serious matter. Um, and in and just two brief examples of that from the Old Testament, Second Chronicles 26, there's a Jewish king back before the exile, a guy named Uzziah, who was the king in Jerusalem, living in the holy city. And he was wealthy and successful, and he sought after God, and he, he fought bravely to defend God's people and, and, and the nation of Israel, and, and he prospered as a result of it. And as his greatness grew, as his power grew, his pride grew, um, and the Bible says, to his ruin, because 
even as the king, even as the top guy in the country, given all this power, the fact is, is there were still some things he was not allowed to do. He, was a, he, he, wasn't a, he wasn't a priest. He wasn't descended from Aaron. He had no right to em- enter the temple and offer sacrifice and worship to God in those prescribed ways. He was not a proper person. And that grated on him because he was the king, gosh darn it. And he was a good guy and he loved God and he did all this. And so one day he entered the temple and began to offer incense on the altar. And the priests gathered together and said, don't do it, Uzziah. You're not honoring God by doing this. This isn't right. And the king got furious at them. And Second Chronicles tells us that God struck him down with leprosy and he carried that disease until the day he died. Um, or we can look at Leviticus 10. Back to Leviticus. Um, even further back in Jewish history, there were two priests, brothers, the sons of actually Aaron, the, the first high priest, Moses' brother. And they apparently some night they got a wild hair. Now these guys were priests. They were proper people. Unlike Uzziah, they were allowed in the temple. But they got a wild hair and decided, well, we're going we're gonna to freestyle the worship of God. So they loaded up their censers with incense and, and, and began to offer worship proper people, but not in a prescribed manner, not in one of the ways that had been outlined or allowed explicitly by God. The, the Bible translates it as they offered strange fire to the Lord. Um, now, the account in Leviticus says that fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. So apparently just being a proper person is not enough. So I, I have to ask, does this make anybody uncomfortable? Um, the worship of God is so serious, so profound a matter that apparently it's, it's, it's twisting, it's degradation, it's alteration, it's, it's, it's subtle fudging by people is in fact, uh, apparently it's sometimes in history enough to warrant either a sudden descent of a deadly degenerative wasting disease or just being summarily executed by fire. Um, does that make us nervous? I know it does me. <laughs> I'm not sure how to process that, especially sitting here in, in 2016 where we get to show up for church and it's nice and we sing some songs and we hang out together and there's cookies in the foyer. And um, so there, there, there is some disconnect there, but before we jump to us and like, hey, why does this not track? I, I, I pray that we'll spend a moment in these ancient times and, and see how things have been, how they happened, and with what seriousness the worship of God has rightly been held by people and, and what the implications of God's historical actions regarding his proper worship have been. So, so that's the implication here, that acceptable worship is offered by proper persons in the prescribed manner. Now, as to the last point, which I will be more brief on before trying to make some sense of all this rambling to you, um, is that we see in this text the implication that acceptable worship takes place in the presence of God. Um, all of the examples I've given, I think, help reinforce that, but the real question is, okay, where am I getting that point from? And I sort of answer that question with a question, well, why Jerusalem? Why do we have to gather up a tenth of the people, draw lots, and send them to Jerusalem? Why do we have to assemble this giant list of priests and Levites and doorkeepers? Why? Why Jerusalem? Why does this matter? And I think I've, to some extent I've already alluded to that because Jerusalem in the temple is where God promised that his presence would dwell, that he would put his name there, that there he would be worshipped, that the city would be his holy city, the city of his presence, and that there he would be their God and they would be his people. Um, to some extent, it's just, it's just a d- direct um, 
requirement. It's actually laid out in Deuteronomy 12, 5 and 7. Moses is, is speaking to the, the generation that would enter the promised land, that would become the first generation in Israel. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat for the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed blessed you. We come to Jerusalem because that's where God is. That is where he is worshipped because we worship in the presence of God. And to some extent, it's also a partially inductive point just because if God's not there and you're worshipping, well, what then are you worshipping? At best, nothing. At worst, something else. So this is why Nehemiah rounds up the people and says, we have to get Jerusalem up and running because God said, this is where he will be. This is the place where God has said, I will, the, you know, that I will place my presence here. Uh, a temple built by human hands can't contain me. The people knew that going into it, but God agreed to honor that institution, that building, by placing his presence there. So that Jerusalem would be God's city, our home, the end of the Jewish people's exile and the place where God and there was, and therefore the place where they would worship. So at this point, I could belabor that point. I could give you some more history. I could read even more Old Testament to show you how that is. Um, but I'll leave it at that. Acceptable worship takes place in the presence of God. Um, because you've all been very patient, and I'm, I'm guessing that at this point, you might be asking yourself, you know, how much Old Testament can this guy get? Um, he's quoting Leviticus at us. What did we ever do to him? <laughs> um, uh, it's that kind of church. Uh, <laughs> somehow we've managed to find every part of the Old Testament that, that doesn't really apply to our modern lives in any way, shape, or form. So good job, relevant, topical preaching. Uh -huh. <laughs> So it, it could be very easy to feel deeply disconnected from all this um, because I, I think really the best example is just because we've all seen the worship leader who freestyles it. I'm not naming names. Um, but, you know, they'll start repeating choruses. They'll, they'll create an impromptu a cappella section. They'll start shouting out crazy things between, you know, verses. Amazing grace, so amazing. Um, and, and God doesn't smite him. <laughs> um, you know, and as a three-minute song turns into an eight-minute song, sometimes we wish he would, but most likely we haven't seen that happen. Um, and so we're left with this tension where we say, okay, if, if this is what acceptable worship looks like, and we're way over here and it looks nothing like that, well, is our worship acceptable? If, 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 if leprosy is a possible response for unacceptable worship, it would be good to know. Um, you know are, are we standing in the proper places we make worship to God? Because we have to ask ourselves, well, do our praises great on the ears of God? Are our prayers in vain? Um, is, is, is our praise... Um, a, a sweet and fragrant aroma in God's nostrils, or is it a reek of sin that reaches all the way to heaven? 
If our home is in the presence of God, as I've asserted, and that we come into his presence in worship, if our worship is unacceptable, are we then doomed to be sojourners and exiles on the face of this dying earth until it eventually expires? Now, it may not surprise you over much um, when, I, when I assert that the reason for the difference between what we read here and how we worship now is due to the restoration of our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Um, that may not shock you. It's a Christian church. You probably figured Jesus was going to show up at some point. Um, but what might surprise you is that when I say, that I say that each of those three points I made, that, that Acceptable worship to God is offered by people who have offered themselves to him. That worship to God that is acceptable is offered by proper people in the prescribed way. And that worship takes place in the presence of God. All those three points still hold true. They have not gone anywhere. Jesus didn't show up and say, okay guys, I'm Jesus, rules suck. Let's stop that nonsense. Let's make it easy. Um, I think sometimes we take it that way. We're like, yay Jesus, Old Testament's boring. Throw it out of your Bibles. Um, and and, and that's, that's, that's not what he did. Um, it, it, it gets complicated, and I think we need to talk about it on a case. But the point is, is I believe those three points still hold. And so the question is, how? Why? Uh, all, if all of those things remain deadly serious issues of God's holiness and majesty, the question is, in what way is that tension between what we see here and what we do now resolved? How do those ancient stories of, of tribes and temples apply to us? Um, because we, just like the people in Nehemiah's time, are seeking to come before a holy God, a God of perfect light, and offer him acceptable worship. Because our problems might look a little bit different. We're not as worried about Arameans um, as they were. But um, people haven't changed much in these thousands of years. Um, and so there's a lot of overlap between what we struggle with and what they struggle with. Because the fact is, is then as now, people come before God holding back, saying, God, change me, just not this sin. Um, God, use me for your purposes, just not here, here, there, or with those people. They're funny looking. Um, and we still approach God as if his presence, his, his favor, his blessing were a, a right and not a privilege of which we can never be worthy. And we still want God to come before us, not the other way around. We want God to seek an audience with us. We want him to come to the city we've built for our name and not strap our proverbial sandals on and find his city. Because the truth is, in and of ourselves, our worship is wholly, entirely, and completely unacceptable. Nehemiah and his people restored Jerusalem to its true purpose to offer worship to God, and that was right and proper. But even if we ourselves could journey to that temple, which is not there anymore, um, could we worship there with any integrity? Are we, are we proper people? Can we offer the prescribed rituals? We are nameless vagrants sojourning through the earth with, with no lineage, and no family, no inheritance in Israel, and we would bring strange fire, unauthorized worship before God. And our hearts aren't clean before God. Because even if somehow we could offer a by-the-numbers proper Old Testament sacrifice, um, which actually would take some serious upper body strength, by the way. <laughs> um, the fact is, is slaves to our own sin 
our hearts would not be right before God. We would not be offered to him and our sacrifices would be justly unacceptable. Now, Jesus. When Jesus left the Father's side, when he left his home, he came to be born a man like us and he came under the full weight of the law which no one had ever met or could meet. And when he came, he came into the presence of the Father as a man offering acceptable worship. I, I talked about needing acceptable worship, needing someone to offer themselves to God. Well, Jesus offered his life in its entirety. Mark 10.45 says that he, the Son of Man, came to, not to be served, but to serve and to be, give his life as a ransom for many. He submitted his will to the Father's holding nothing back, even taking upon himself the Father's outpoured cup of wrath for the sins of mankind. And he came into the presence of God as a proper person and offered proper sacrifice because he is our eternal high priest, fully man, our mediator before the judgment seat of God, the one who prays for us in the presence of the Father. He offered a final and complete sacrifices to end all sacrifices in perpetuity. If you might remember our verse of the week, 1 Timothy talks about there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews 9 also talks about it a little bit, speaking of this entire system of sacrifice and, and offering and ritual, uh, 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And he offered worship in the presence of God because though fully man and our mediator before God, he and the Father were one. He worshiped in God's holy city, offering genuine and sincere worship in the temple of God. And he did not separate himself from God's presence through sin as we have, and all others as well. And more than that, he knew what Jerusalem was supposed to be. He knew what it ought to have been and what it wasn't. It was a city he wept over because he knew what God had intended and he saw what we had made it and it broke his heart. In Luke 13, he lamented, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were unwilling. He lived as he ought to have. He offered acceptable worship to God and he had the right to come home. But as he, he made that final pilgrimage into Jerusalem, as he came our high priest to make the final sacrifice that would make restitution for sin, as he offered himself wholly to the will of the Father, he was led outside the gates of that city. 
and it was outside the gates that he was crucified. And, and I want us to focus on the irony that the only man among us worthy of God's city died outside its gates in exile so that we could come into it. That's the heavy part. The, the better news, the part that, that helps at least me keep it together, is that because death and sin had no claim on Jesus and have no claim on Jesus, he rose from the grave because it could not hold him. Resurrected and glorified, his high priesthood, his intersection with the Father on our behalf continues because that is a very easy thing to forget as we, as we look backward, as we say, look at what Jesus has done for us. And, and I want to say, look at what Jesus is doing for us. Our high priest lives, our, our, our savior and our king, but our mediator with the father continues that mediation, that intercession. He continues to offer prayer and worship to God that God finds acceptable. And it is through him and by him that we offer to God acceptable worship. I said that the three po po uh, points hold true for us today. Uh, in offering ourselves to Jesus, we offer ourselves to God incarnate. Um, as to whether we are proper persons offering acceptable, proper sacrifices. Well, 1 Peter 2.5 points out that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Mediated by our high priest, our worship, however half-hearted, half-baked, or off-key it may be, <laughs> um, it comes before the Father as a pleasing aroma, a love song from his children. And so, well then, well, how do we come into the presence of God to worship? Where is the presence of God now, if not in the ruined temple in Jerusalem? And the answer is that when we offer ourselves to Jesus, we die with him, we die to sin, and we're risen to new life. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit comes into our being, the Spirit of God itself. And, and so, it is in the presence of the Holy Spirit, that, that third part of the Trinity, that we have had the privilege to come together today and worship in the presence of God. In Christ, we may come before the majesty of the throne in heaven and offer worship that is found acceptable to a perfect God. So then we must ask ourselves, well, how then will we worship our maker? How can our hearts bear the awe-inspiring greatness, the terrifying holiness, and the gracious mercy of the Lord? I will turn one final time to Hebrews. I know I've been there a lot. It's a great book. It'll change your life. <laughs> Hebrews 12, 1829. The author of Hebrews is speaking of coming into the presence of God. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Dear God, thank you that we can come before you. Thank you that we can stand in the presence of perfection in a room where your spirit is, where your holiness is, where your justice is, and not be struck down by it. Thank you that we can come before you and worship and praise your name and find our rest and our home in your presence. God, without you, we have nothing. With you, we have everything. And we bring you nothing of value or worth we offer you our love and our adoration and our worship because it is right and proper and to our benefit that we do so. God, we, our hearts sing your praises in, with a beauty that our, 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 our fragile human voices cannot match. But God, through our prayers, through our songs, through our love for each other, through our love for you, through our service to your kingdom. God, we seek to shout our love to you and our worship for your great name. God, guide our hearts to love you more, to look upon your greatness and question how we can stand in your presence. God, guide us our hearts to reflect upon the miracle wrought by Christ that as holy and perfect as you are, we can return to you. God, thank you for offering an end to exile. Thank you for the city of Jerusalem, the spiritual Jerusalem that you have promised is coming. God, bind us together in love as we, as we in faith, we sojourners on the face of this earth, wait for your coming. We wait for the return of your son, Jesus, to lead us to the city that cannot be shaken. Holy God, Turn our hearts to you. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.